Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Peter Nolan of the Cambridge Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge talks about how the era of wild capitalist globalisation has drawn to an end, hastened by the global financial crisis. Thank you very much. When I received the uh, kind invitation uh, to come and speak uh, in a series of lectures about uh, ways of thinking, ways of seeing, uh, I unhesitatingly accepted, and it's a great honour to be giving the first of these lectures. It also is the first time, I'm from the West Country, I'm from Plymouth, as you probably gas- gather from my peculiar accent, um, not quite to be compared with Bristol, but, you know, it's a pretty peculiar accent. And uh, the, the, this is the first time I, I've actually been in Bath, um, other than passing, passing through on the train. And, of course, Bath is a, a masterpiece, a Georgian masterpiece, Pevsner, in his magisterial series of books on British architecture, describes it as a piece of town planning. As a piece of town planning, Georgian Bath is reign supreme in England and arguably in Europe. So it's a great pleasure to come here today. Walked around in the pouring rain before I came to this lecture and looked at that's your beautiful uh, Georgian city. I'm going to do three things in the course of this one-hour lecture. The first is to talk about some of the ideas in the first part of the uh, book that James referred to, uh, which is about the crossroads of capitalist globalisation. And I want to talk about the achievements of capitalist globalisation, and they are worth reflecting on. And the second part of my talk, I'll I'll talk about the difficulties, the problems of capitalist globalisation, you mentioned Faust, and I think the theme, people's, nobody has a very original idea, and it's curious how many people in considering capitalist globalisation have come back to the theme of Faust. Stephen Green in his book Good Value also talks about the Faustian characteristics of this period. In the end you have to pay something back, even though you have something wonderful before that payback time comes. And so at the second part of my talk, I'll talk about the contradictions of capitalist globalisation, if you like, the two-edged sword of capitalist globalisation. It does wonderful things, but it also does not very wonderful things. And this presents a challenge to our way of thinking, our ways of seeing the world. The third part of my talk is about how we go forward philosophically and what kind of values are going to govern, if any, govern at all in the 21st century. So three tasks that I will set myself. The first segment, then, is to talk about what we have achieved, what setting free the market, liberalisation, to produce what I call wild capitalism, but you can call it whatever you like, uh, free market capitalism, Washington consensus, whatever you like. And a theme of the last 30 years has been the appeal to, to history, the appeal to the ideas, particularly of Adam Smith, that everybody, of course, instantly became an expert in Adam Smith, but sadly very few people have bothered to read uh, very much of what, if anything, of what he's written. Uh, But his ideas, the importance of the market, the importance of competition, the importance of entrepreneurship, the division of labour, the invisible hand, is, of course, at the heart of so many of the propositions surrounding the liberalisation of markets in this period. And, of course, we've come... A long way. I'm from Plymouth. Plymouth, we had a huge naval dockyard, 12,000 people. And those of you who are younger than me in this room, which is probably quite a few people, uh, will not remember 
what our business structure was like in the 50s and 60s. It was a comprehensive impact of state ownership, inward-looking limitations on international trade, limitations on foreign exchange movement. My passport, when I went to America in 1968, had on it, I had to record the amount of money, and being a very wealthy person and being essentially financially driven, I was going to do big deals in America. So I took with me, I think it was 12 or 15 pounds sterling, uh, which I didn't buy a lot when I was there, but I had to declare that and then give it back when I came back. So times have changed dramatically. And underneath this liberalisation, this opening up of the free market, have been the ideas of Adam Smith. And we can see in an extraordinary fashion how, if we wish to look at it that way, have that way of seeing, if you like, that something really incredible has happened in the last 30 years. The opening up of business through privatisation, liberalisation of M&A, mergers and acquisitions, breaking down international boundaries has produced what, by any reasonable definition, criterion, has been the most extraordinary period of technical progress the world has ever seen. And at the heart of this is exactly the mechanism that Smith talked about, the mechanism of firm competing with firm. Not, of course, exactly in the way which Smith visualised, which is small, anonymous firms fighting with each other. Instead, one of the extraordinary aspects of this period, which is very much disliked by mainstream economists, because it's not what's taught in their textbooks, is that the Smithian invisible hand, the competition of the free market has been the competition of giant oligopolists who fought each other with incredible ferocity. And that's a great thing. It's very progressive. It's very, very good. And it's produced all the wonderful things that have characterised this period. So, Boeing fights with Airbus. Just two firms slugging it out. But they produce better and safer, more fuel-efficient, quieter planes that need to be repaired less often and reduce costs. So as a result of this incredible oligopolistic competition, there were 15 aircraft manufacturers in the 1950s and 1960s. Three Soviet manufacturers, 10 manufacturers in Europe, broadly speaking. All gone. Bang, 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 bang. Today we just have the duopoly. Boeing fights Airbus. If you'd asked most economists, if we'd been teaching a class in 1965, and the class of this dimensions, and we'd said, look, in the next 30 years, the global aircraft industry is going to expand 30, 40-fold. Today we've got a dozen companies. How many companies will there be in the year 2011? Well, you know, somebody in this corner would have said, well, you know, competition, global level playing field, I think 50. Then a strange person sitting here would have said, no, 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 it'll be the same. And then a very strange gentleman over here with a long beard, you know, and so on, so on, he'd have said, I think the answer will be do. Of course, it's, 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 it's Karl Marx's grandson, you see. And he'd have said it's going to be two. And he would be right. How astonishing. And if we look at industry after industry, we find basically the same story. You mentioned Rexam, the beverage industry. Anybody can make, anybody can make beverages. You can just put a bottle to the tap, whack a label on, and you form a beverage company. Uh, and... Yet, this industry also has become incredibly consolidated. Basically, two giant beverage companies, just four giant beer companies across the whole world. And they fight each other. They fight to improve the nature of beverages, to make them safer, to make them packaging more lightweight so we can save energy when we make these products, to make sure that the machines in which they're delivered 
the machines that you put your slot in, your money into, are, operate more effectively. These are extraordinary achievements of capitalist globalization. And we've touched any area we want to think about. And we've had incredible, unprecedented technical progress. And of course, at the core of all these things is technical progress in information technology. And again, at the core of information technology has been a handful of giant oligopolistic firms that have fought each other like dogs to make technical progress. And if you don't fight and succeed, you die. Nokia may die. We don't know. But it won't be replaced by some thousands of small companies. It'll be replaced by another giant company that takes Nokia's place. So this has been an extraordinary period of technical progress. The basic philosophy of Smith has been vindicated, competition works, but not exactly the kind of competition that he visualised. But it has been an amazing era for all of us. Now, one of the associated important aspects of this period has been the liberalisation of financial flows. And those of us who are interested, who work on developing countries, must also be aware of the contribution that flows of capital into developing countries, which were not possible 30, 40 years ago. The whole of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe was cut off from foreign direct investment. China, Vietnam, Southeast Asia cut off from foreign direct investment. Brazil, South America, inward-looking. India, inward-looking, and so on. But the barriers have been removed to foreign direct investment. And so across the developing world has come a flood of capital, building businesses across the world. Not exporting cars, exporting soft drinks, exporting machinery, but going and building it close to the customer in developing countries. And this has had a fantastically powerful, positive impact on economic progress in developing countries. So if we take, for example, the case of China, China today has about $500 billion worth of foreign direct investment. If we look at technical progress in China, the Chinese government estimates that about 60% of technical progress, 60% of high-technology industries are produced by companies owned by multinationals. 90% of China's exports, high-technology exports, are produced by multinational companies. This is an extraordinary contribution to China's modernization. If we think about global financial institutions, even here we can say global financial firms have made a very big contribution to globalization. Just at the moment, we're debating what is to be done to regulation of global financial firms. But what is often forgotten is that giant financial firms like JP Morgan, like HSBC, Bank of America, Citibank, are essential to capitalist globalization. If you have businesses which have plants in Latin America, plants in Europe, plants in China, and they have a supply chain in all these countries, they need global financial services. They need giant global financial firms in order to organize their business activities. And so even something which is so maligned as giant global banks, think very carefully before you break them up, because these are the glue, these are the cement of capitalist globalization. These are the, the things that hold together the global value chain. So you want the technical progress, you want the giant firms, but you have to think about the glue of finance that holds them together. And it's not a coincidence that today the global financial services industry has become very concentrated at the top. The top 25 firms in the global financial services industry now occupy the commanding heights. Various estimates, maybe 50% of global assets, close to, are now in the hands of just 25 
systemically important global financial institutions. And they're not there simply because of the greed of their CEOs. Without them, no Volkswagen on a global scale, no Coca-Cola on a global scale, no GE on a global scale. So these are achievements. These are extraordinary accomplishments of capitalism, of Das Kapital in the epoch of capitalist globalization. They've done wonderful things for all of us as customers, as consumers, as human beings, cheapening things, cheapening things, and making them better. If we look beyond that and say, what has it done you know, in a wider sense for humanity, then we can also say extraordinary things have been accomplished in this period. Let me just take a couple of examples. If we take, for example, transport, the price, the real price of long-distance air travel has fallen and fallen and fallen and fallen. If we take the real price of automobiles, the real price of automobiles has fallen and fallen and fallen. So today, even you know, middle-class people in developing countries can think about buying a three or a $4,000 automobile, the nature of which is quite different from automobiles 30 or 40 years ago. That's a lot of progress. That's a lot of things that satisfy people. If we think, for example, about telecommunications, the technical progress in telecommunications, which younger people here take for granted, has immeasurably, literally immeasurably, because you can't measure, who knows what is the welfare value of the funny little gadgets that you hold in your hand? Who knows that, what's the welfare value of an iPod, of an iPad? You know, tapping the iPad so that you can do your emails in Kazakhstan or Vietnam, talk to your friends, speak to your mum, send some pictures. What is the, value, the welfare value of it? Who knows how to, nobody has a clue how to measure it. But it's certainly profound. It is incredible. And it's not produced by a hole-in-the-shop corner operation. It's produced by a giant entity. And everybody all over the world is, I'm surprised there's nobody here. Why is no iPads here? Very curious, very curious. Anyway, that's an amazing piece of progress produced by capitalism. They didn't have iPads in the Soviet Union. They didn't have iPads in China before 1978. Well, they didn't in the West either, but they wouldn't have them today if they closed their boundaries. These are incredible pieces of progress. If we think about poverty and famine, there is a famous Sherlock Holmes story, The Dog That Didn't Bark. When we were studying students in the 60s, our deep preoccupation was with poverty and famine in developing countries. When people talked about China in the 1930s, what did they call it? China, land of famine. W.H. Mallory wrote this wonderful book, Quaker Relief Commission, China, the land of famine. And in the 1950s, late 50s, China also had a terrible famine. If you look at India's history, before the 1960s, 1940s, 30s, 20s, and 19th century. Famine, 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 famine. And yet, what has happened in the last 40 years is amazing. Global population has increased in ways that everybody was concerned about. In the 1960s, people were all talking about Malthusian gloom and misery because global population was going to increase and food output would not catch up. Famine will stalk the world. But it hasn't. It hasn't. And one of the main reasons it hasn't is technical progress and investment in new types of products, new ways of new pumping machinery, information technology, new seeds, new transport systems. And these are a major reason why the dimensions of famine have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. This is an incredible achievement of this period. Then we come maybe to the sort of final achievement, which is in some ways more important than all these achievements. I started off by talking about Adam Smith 
an Enlightenment thinker in the 18th century. His great book was published, one of his two great books was published in 1776, a good year. And he, one of his co-thinkers of that period was a gentleman called Immanuel Kant. And Kant, along with many people around him, thought that capitalism would produce universal peace, a universal force for breaking down the boundaries between peoples. He said in his essay, An Idea for a Universal History with a Cosmopolitan Purpose, 1784. He said, history embodies a hidden plan of nature. Such a plan opens up the comforting prospect of a future in which all the germs implanted by nature can be fully developed and in which man's destiny can be fulfilled here on earth. He said the highest purpose of nature is to develop a universal cosmopolitan existence uniting all the peoples of the world. And so we can say he was right. He was right. That's what we've got. This is what we have had created by the liberating force of capitalist globalization. Just consider one example. Between 1987 and 2008, there were 2,219 cross-border mergers and acquisitions of greater than $1 billion each. So if you like, 2,219 firms gave up their national passport, became somebody else's, or became international. Because now anybody can buy shares in any country, more or less, anywhere in the world, one or two restrictions. If you look at the leaders of global businesses, more and more they are from another country than where the country company has its headquarters. Everybody speaks English. And that's unbelievable. That, you know, just today as I was coming down on the train, there's Klaus Kleinfeld, a German the head formerly of Siemens. Well, Siemens paid a lot of money doing some things it shouldn't have done. And so Klaus left. Klaus Kleinfeld became the head instead of Alcoa. But he's not American. Alcoa is American, Al the aluminium company of America. And the head is, is Klaus Kleinfeld, a German. It's just one of numerous examples. So in the boardrooms and the senior management of global companies, people are truly global. This is a dramatic change, huge positive change in the world, moving towards a universal cosmopolitan existence that Kant presaged with his famous essay in 1784. So, this really is incredible. It's all good. It really is all good. I'm afraid I bore my family stupid because I, I'm, um, I'm ashamed to say that I'm Bob Dylan obsessed. Well, I think it's a nice obsession. So anybody who's followed Bob Dylan through his life will know that one of his most interesting recent works is the LP called Together Through Life. Maybe some of you have it. I think it's absolutely brilliant, like everything he's done. And it concludes, and it's interesting, it's the last song on the LP. Of course, it's not an LP. It's whatever you choose to call them these days. I don't know what you call them. Uh, I like vinyl myself. So the last song on this LP is called It's All Good. And of course it's ironic. It's like the fourth movement of Shostakovich's symphonies where he was told to write something triumphant, something wonderful. He said, if you wanted, it's all good. I'll tell you, if Stalin wants me to write something all good, I'll do it. And so you have these wonderful triumphant final movements but underneath it you know it's not all good. It certainly wasn't all good in solitude. 
And similarly, Bob's saying it's, it's not really all good. <laughs> such an irony in this song, and it's a very hard, fast song. Increasingly, as the years roll by, as the force of capitalist globalisation gathered force, and we should remember, just remember now, when people are quacking a different tune. There's a famous play by Samuel Beckett called Not I. And the theme of the Not I is this lady is thinking about her history. London lady. Biddy and Whitehall played it originally in the Royal Court. And her face is back projected. And she all the time talks about her terrible life, the awful things she'd done. Terrible things she'd done and experienced. And it's punctuated at certain points by screaming and shouting, Not I! Well, it's interesting how the people's tunes can change. And people who were the chorus masters, just see the way The Economist has changed its tune in the last two or three years. It's very interesting. Not I. Was it me who said that global liberal markets solve everything? Not I. Jeffrey Sachs in the Soviet Union. You need to privatise, liberalise, destroy communism, everybody will be better off. Not I. Curious. But most people forget. Uh, so... It's good to remember sometimes. It's very interesting. So, the point is, as this process wore on, so you could feel people's discontents, people's sensibilities, that everything was really not good. That really, whatever might be said at Davos, whatever Martin Wolf or Thomas Friedman might say, it really wasn't all good. And it, curiously enough, I emphasise that nobody has anything original to say about anything. And I started to use a quote, which other people use simultaneously, and it's just curious, people are drawn to the same concept. Nothing is particularly original. And the quote that I started to use in the years building into this um, eruption of the global financial system was very simple. It was about the two-edged nature of the sword of capitalist globalisation. And it goes as follows. It was the best of times, and it really was. It was the worst of times. Hmm. It was the age of wisdom, the age of the internet, the age of knowledge and so on. But it was the age of foolishness and there probably is more foolishness available to us today than ever in history, but also more wisdom. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. And it's curious how many people were drawn to this quote, which, of course, was Dickens' genius in the middle of the 19th century, Tale of Two Cities. And so people could feel that this was a two-edged sword. It had good things that were fantastically good and bad things that were fantastically bad. So what were the bad things that this wild free market system produced? The capitalist freedoms liberated comprehensively. This animal let out of the cage. This monster, this Frankenstein let loose. And we can identify four major respects in which these limitless freedoms, boundless freedoms, produce problematic results. The first is the double aspect of our relationship to the natural world, to the environment. And I say the natural world and the environment because I think they are connected, but they're not the same things. And I was brought up in Plymouth, and we had lots of fish. 
Um, one of my friends is here. Will remember the Plymouth. <laughs> the old lady's cutting up the fish. This is gone. This is gone. All you can buy there is fish fingers. You know, fish fingers. No fish at all. Nothing. 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 No fish. And it really well. Does it matter? You see, you may argue it doesn't matter. The World Wildlife Fund has just produced a new index. Its last index. I haven't read. I just literally got it yesterday. Its last index, which tries to m plot. The numbers, of course, it's quite hard because the little things keep moving. Um, the numbers of 1,313 vertebrate creatures, reptiles, birds, mammals, fish, amphibians. They don't count every one, but they make some estimates. And they estimate that the global stock of living things, apart from us, has fallen from the base year 1970, 100, to 70 in 2003. 30% fall in the numbers of living creatures. Now, you may say it doesn't matter. It's not important. But some people think it does. Edward Wilson, the Harvard entomologist, thinks it does. And he says, if we carry on with our wild capitalist approach to nature, we will end up in what he calls the age of loneliness, where there'll be a very small range of species across the world. Of course, we can recreate anything we like on the Internet. We can have all kinds of but it's not the same thing. Maybe you can even have smelly things, you know, you can smell and touch and feel, but it's not quite the same as standing by the seashore or uh, hearing a natural bird. Now, the person who most brilliantly anticipated this was, of course, American lady, Rachel Carson. And in her, one of her many incredibly powerful books, she warned us in 1960 in The Silent Spring that control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance born of the Neanderthal age of biology and philosophy, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man. She asked the question, she said, can any civilization wage relentless war on life without destroying itself, without losing the right to be called civilized? And I think her words are very pertinent to us considering where we stand now, and we haven't resolved this question. Associated with that, but a rather different question, is, of course, global warming. And now we can see that the wild capitalist mechanism is not going to resolve the problem of global warming. Almost certainly we'll have four or five degrees centigrade increase in average global temperatures. Ca carbon capture and sequestration is, is, I think, a fantasy. And we have to deal with almost certainty that we'll carry on using coal, we'll carry on using oil, because energy transitions take a long, long, long time. Carbon capture and sequestration sounds very simple. It requires a tremendous amount of energy, and then you have something of great volume. You've got to transport the liquids a very long distance, and you've got to find something safe to put them into. It is a monumental task. And then, how much is it going to cost? It's not going to solve our problems in the quite foreseeable future. So almost certainly, we're going to have to do a lot of... People are going to have to, <laughs> as famously... Norman Tebbit said they're going to have to get on their bicycles. There's going to be a lot of migration. And uh, that's going to require a lot of cooperation, a lot of international relations. So these are giant challenges that face humanity from the unleashing of the freedom to consume and the freedom to use the natural world as our resource. The second challenge relates to something I touched on in the first segment of these three segments of discussion, which is the challenge of the global business revolution, not a term that I used in the first segment of my discussion. 
but I hinted at it. What has happened to the nature of industrial organisation and consolidation is totally different from that anticipated and predicted by the vast body of academic economists insofar as they chose to consider it. They've carried on with their models, perfectly competitive world, which is nice and easy to model. You can all kinds of fancy questions, but, you know, it's like producing very complicated analyses of a little tiny speck of dust when behind you there's an elephant that's growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, the blunt reality in terms of analysing the nature of business is that the mainstream of economics, people like Alfred Marshall in Cambridge and other successors of this way of thinking, really had have a very problematic view of the nature of competition. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the people who had the deepest view was Karl Marx, 20th century, Edith Penrose, America, Alfred Chandler, and of course Schumpeter, and various other non-mainstream economists who are ridiculed as unscientific and just looking at facts. Well, facts sometimes are quite useful. And the reality is that people like Alfred Chandler said, looking at the history of capitalism in America, in France, and in Germany, what I see is a process that, if left to itself, becomes highly consolidated. But he didn't anticipate just how powerful this process would be in the last 30 years. And what we've seen is an incredible process of industrial consolidation, not just in the aircraft industry amongst the assemblers, not just amongst the automobile assemblers, not just the beverage companies, but also throughout their supply chain. This is a process, I was trying to think of a way of characterising it, having looked at a variety of different industries. And the best characterization I could think of was a cascade in the sense of a waterfall, water flowing down over the rocks. And what has happened is if you look at the force of the systems integrators, Boeing and Airbus, GM and Toyota, Volkswagen, the beverage makers, Coke and Pepsi, the beer manufacturers, SAB Miller, and Heuser-Busch InBev, and any other sector you care to touch. These companies have giant procurement budgets, 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 billion dollars a year. And as they've got bigger and more global, so they have the pressure on the supply chain to transform itself is palpable. You can feel it. You can actually feel it like electricity. And James mentioned one example. Just let's take the beverage industry, which is a very simple industry. He mentioned Rexham. This industry 30 years ago had hundreds of companies manufacturing beverage cans. Today, just three companies manufacture beverage cans. Rexham is one of the three. I guarantee most people in the room have not heard of Rexham. I won't ask, play a game of asking questions. But most people, most audiences have never heard of Rexham, R-E-X-A-M. If you ask somebody, they say, yes, I know Rexham, so I say, what does it do? It says it's got a crappy football team. But that, this is a different Rexham. It's spelt, <laughs> spelt differently. They used to have a very interesting football team, and that's another story. Right, so Rexham, as James said, manufactures 60 billion, 60 billion beverage cans last year. That's 10 for every person on the planet. They sold 25 billion beverage cans to one company, and you can guess which company that was. Let's take another sector. So three companies have 75 to 80% of the total global beverage can market. Why have they got bigger? Because Coke and Pepsi and Heuser-Busch, SAB Miller says, we want cheaper cans. We want better cans. We want cans that are lighter weight. We want cans that save energy. 
We want cans that can be shaped in nice, interesting ways so our customers can be happy when they glug their product. These are real, real, real impacts. Take another little innocuous area in the global beverage industry, but also related to other industries. Industrial gases, a very simple product, industrial gases. But industrial gases today has only three companies, Praxair, Eliquid, and Linde in Germany. Linde took over the giant British company, the British Oxygen Company, which had built itself into a global company. But of course, like all these companies, they changed their names so that you lose the British or the French or the German, and it now was just plain BOC. Nobody knows what BOC is, but it was a very powerful industrial gas company, itself the product of innumerable mergers and acquisitions. Now just three companies, Eliquid, Praxair, and Linde, account for three quarters of the total world industrial gas market, the whole world. And this business of clusters is complete rubbish. You go to some plant. We had a cluster in Cambridge. I went past the in chemical laboratories yesterday, the little cluster of things outside the laboratory, one of which said BOC. Well, now, somebody doesn't know, says, oh, how nice. That's probably a little company in Arbury Estate that's making oxygen for... Forget it. It's BOC. Behind BOC is Linda, which has plants across the whole world. There are lots of little clusters, but of giant corporations that have many plants across the world. The cluster is a deeply misunderstood concept. So what you have through the cascade effect, every segment of the supply chain you touch has incredible industrial consolidation. This is the nature of this period. Let me take one further example to try to synthesize this story. The British government has a department whose name regularly changes as politics change. And it was called the Department of Brr, Business, Enterprise, God knows what it was, Research and Redundancy or something, I don't know, Brr, Brr, Brr. And it's changed into the Department of Business, come on, what is it, Business, Industry, and strategy of some stupid title, biz. It's gone from burr to biz. Is that progress? I don't know. Anyway, they're two stupid acronyms. But they do something very useful, which is every year until this year, because now they're bankrupt and they've stopped it, they produce a thing called the, the Global 1400. Investigate the top 1400 companies in the whole world by research and development expenditure. It was extremely interesting. Nobody reads it. I think I'm the only person who has any interest in reading it. But it's very interesting. Because what does it show? It's two years ago, the top 1400, the G1400, spent $545 billion on R&D. Hmm, that's a lot of money. I do commend you to read the latest report... Oh, go. You done? The latest report... <laughs> There's more to come. <laughs> the latest report... The, the um, latest report by the Royal Society. The Royal Society on... Again, people love alliterations, especially if the content is vacuous. This is a beautifully alliterated study called Knowledge, Networks and Nations. And it's a very clever alliteration because, of course, knowledge starts with a K, so it's doubly clever. But it's an incredibly stupid report. It, it, has, it's, it talks about global research, everything. And it's written by scholars, by academics, for academics. Royal Society. So it has 150 pages describing how scholars network with each other. Very nice. It's got all kinds of charts that show how scholar in Japan networks with a scholar in, in, in America. And they network with each other. Endless charts. Of course, behind each of these charts are lots of airplane tickets, you know, people flying around the world networking, and maybe some virtual... And it's all full of all these beautiful pictures. If you look at the people who are on the board, 
Not a single business person. Not one. Not one. Then you get to page 32, and it has the very interesting statistic. It says global research and development, sorry, in the OECD countries. The proportion financed by business rose from 51% in 1981 to 65% last year. I'll repeat that. Total R&D of all kinds in the OECD countries, the proportion funded by business increased from 51% in 1981 to 65% last year. The rest of the report is constructed as though this fact had not been presented. It vitiates everything else in the report. If you want to understand R&D, understand business. But of course they don't like business, don't understand business, because it's nasty. It's about making money, it's about greedy people. So you don't want to talk about business. So you want to talk about networks and holding hands across frontiers with your mates. Very problematic report. The point is, research is almost all done by business. And in that Global 1400, it is, of course, if you go to cluster people, if you go to mainstream textbooks, or you listen to Thomas Friedman, or read Martin Wolf, you'll believe that this is all done by networks of universities and small businesses. But just a minute, there's an interesting statistic, which is, of that 545 billion, the Global 1400, which is the core of all technical progress in the last 30 years, what do we find? The top 100 companies account for 60% of the total. Sorry, can you say that again? The top 100 companies account for 60% of the total investment of R&D of global business. In other words, this is oligopolistic competition. This is Siemens fights GE, fights Philips, Boeing fights Airbus, Toyo, Intel, Cisco, Nokia. That's it. Nobody from the developing world at all. Nobody. So, this is very interesting. So what this means is a huge challenge for people and firms in developing countries. How do they deal, not just with the consolidation of systems integrators, but also incredible consolidation down through the supply chain? The third point is about global class structure. At the end of 30 years of capitalist globalization, when everything is supposed to trickle down, what do we find? We find a world still of incredible inequality. You can debate whether it's increased or not at a global level in this period. The catch-up of China means that international inequalities have diminished. But if you look at the overall dimensions of inequality, they are still fantastic. And none illustrates this better than the wider World Institute of Development Economics Research's study of global wealth. Global wealth is three times global output. And the wider study shocked people when they did it. They said, do it again, do it again, do it again. And what they found was that after 30 years of capitalist globalization, the top 2% of the world's wealth owners, the top 2% have 50% of total global wealth. The bottom 50% have 1%. The top 2% have 50%. The bottom 50% have 1%. And that's what we're going into the 21st century with. Extraordinary inequality after 30 years of capitalist globalization. And that is what comes from the workings of the free market. It's a great challenge for our ways of thinking. The fourth aspect that we'll talk about is the financial system. Definitely global finance, through incredible consolidation, squeezing out the middle, have produced giant global companies that can serve global business in a way that benefits us all. No question at all. But also, of course, they are incredibly powerful. And they have a very powerful voice to influence the way global financial markets are regulated by national and by international institutions. And it doesn't need 
great brilliance to observe that what's happened in this period is that through the deregulation of financial markets, a process by which the free market spontaneously produces an asset bubble which interacts with credit creation has formed the core of the global economy in this period. And of course this came to a crunching conclusion two, three years ago. Now interestingly, there were people who warned about this. For example, Henry Kaufman, an American banker, every year at the Jackson Hole Conference, if you buy his book written last year, he just simply says, these were my speeches. I'm a banker, I'm a financier, he says. And these were the speeches he gave every year to the Jackson Hole Conference. And he said, watch out. We are creating an asset and debt bubble that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it will explode. And of course, it did explode. So this is the consequence, again, of the capitalist free market in the realm of finance. So where does that leave us today? We have all these achievements, all these amazing accomplishments of the global free market, wild capitalism but enormous challenges from the two-edged sword. And these challenges, by and large, are international, are global. And so we have created a global business system, but how do we regulate it? How do we think about intelligent regulation of all these respects, to make it more just, to ensure that businesses are not just those that dominate from rich countries, to deal with the impact upon our environment, to deal with this wild, out-of-control financial system? How do citizens across the world, deal with this question. Now, it's not an abstract question, because in the end, we all have passports, we all have nationalities, and we all belong to particular cultures. And so, the challenge that we face is not one that Marx, for example, anticipated, or Kant. They thought these national boundaries would disappear. Unfortunately, they're very real, and they govern the way in which the world may or may not be effectively governed in the decades ahead. When we consider these questions, there are many, many aspects to it. But I'd just like to consider two. The first is China, and the second is the high-income countries. But of course we could consider Islam, 1.3 billion people in Islam, 1.3 billion in the Catholic Church, we could consider those two. But China is the fastest growing and the most powerful. And the way in which we, in the high-income countries, especially the United States of America, interacts with China in the years ahead will be extremely important. It will be very important indeed because this task is a, a fundamental task for our survival as a species. You could say it's a Darwinian challenge for the human species, if you really want to dramatise it. So how do, how do we... Britain, Europe, America particularly, engage with China. If we want to think about engagement with China, there are probably three names that come to mind that are particularly powerful. They all begin with H. Now, there's a curious thing. Huntington, Hutton, and Helper. These are three people who've written, in, in the, two of them very recently, one rather longer ago. But their ideas are extremely important, very powerful. <laughs> So, many people are still, in their hearts, really actually believe there is a clash of civilizations. Put the Muslim world on one side for the moment. They believe there really is something very different in China, a very different kind of culture, a very different kind of society for them to engage with, which is curious, because so many Chinese people now are here studying in our 
country, working here in Western countries. But it's a very deep and powerful sentiment. And you pick up any paper, and it's powerful in anything you touch. Most recently, I say, Will Hutton's book, The Writing on the Wall, and very powerful, at least in its title, and its general argument, Stefan Halper's book, The Beijing Consensus. And their idea is that China really is fundamentally different from us. Their values are different. And if we're trying to solve these problems, it's going to be very hard to cooperate with China in the 21st century. A moment's reflection should make us realise this is a very simplistic view of China and its history. Indeed, we can learn an enormous amount from China. Unlike us, in which our capitalism developed very late, our capitalism really took off only in... 17th, 18th century. China's had capitalism, sophisticated capitalism, for at least a thousand years. We talk about our enlightenment in the 18th century, 17th and 18th century. China had three enlightenments. It had an enlightenment alongside the efflorescence of technical progress and commerce in the Song, 11th and 12th century. It had a, another efflorescence of economic progress, technical change and culture. <coughs> in the late Ming Dynasty, in the 16th into the 17th century. It had another efflorescence of technical progress and economic advance and population growth and culture and writing and literature in the, early eight, in the late 17th and early 18th century into around about 1800. And China has had a long history of experimenting with how to govern the market, how a bureaucratic system can use the market, but also regulate in the common interest. If you like, if you want to call it that, a form of a socialist market economy for over a thousand years. And we would do well to try to understand that, to connect with it, to understand China's culture, its history, the nature of its government, and the way in which it has historically thought about governing the market, regulating the market. We can learn much from that. However, that is not the predominant view of many people in our society, in our politics. And the theme that is most widely expanded upon in the mass media, almost in every, every sentence, is our enlightenment and how we can teach them our values so that we can have common values, but there are values from which they learn, the values of the enlightenment. By the year 2030, the World Bank estimates there will be a huge increase in the world's middle class, tripling to maybe three billion people. It's good news for the world, good news for enlightenment. But alongside that tripling of the global middle class, the global poor people will at least be five billion people because the world's population is going to grow. And the World Bank estimates that these five billion people 63% of the world's population in 2030 will have just 17% of the world's income. And the World Bank is pretty optimistic about most things. Huge expansion of the middle class, but still a minority, a third of the world's population. And a global poor, that is two-thirds of the world's population, with a tiny fraction, less than a fifth of total global income. How is this system going to be governed? Have we got something to teach it? Does our enlightenment help them? Does it give them a guide? What was our enlightenment? 
Well, it's very nice to be here in Bath because from the middle of the 17th century through to 1800, we had this efflorescence of mercantile culture. Commerce exploded. The middle class expanded. And we had the Enlightenment. But let us not forget the context in which that Enlightenment took place. In 1797, when Bath was flourishing, Sir Frederick Eden wrote a study of the labouring poor in Great Britain, the bottom two-thirds of our population during the Enlightenment. He found that a typical labourer, the bottom two-thirds of the population, spent 64% of their total income on two things, bread and potatoes. 64%. In 1797, in the core of the Enlightenment. Sir Frederick Eden, brilliant study, 17, multi-volume study, one of the finest pieces of social science research ever conducted. <clears throat> Alongside that, there was an enlightened middle class who did all kinds of wonderful things. There was, as you are aware, nowhere more so than Bath, an explosion of beautiful building, not for the labouring poor, but for the middle class. Dr Lewis wrote a letter to Matthew Bramble in 1771. Of course, it's an imaginary letter. Tobias Smollett actually wrote the letter. It's, it's of course, written in his novel. And he describes the situation as follows. 1771. Every upstart of fortune, harnessed in the trappings of the mode, presents himself at Bath. As in the very focus of observation, look at me, I've got loads of money. Clerks and factors from the East Indies, loaded with the spoils of plundered provinces, planters, Negro drivers, hucksters from our American plantations, not our loyal great explorers, but our hucksters from the American plantations, the shysters who went out and grabbed land and dragged black people to work for them. These hucksters, enriched they know not how. Agents, commissioners and contractors who fattened in two successive wars on the blood of the nation. Men of low birth and no breeding have found themselves suddenly translated into a state of affluence unknown to former ages. No wonder their brains should be intoxicated with pride, vanity and presumption. Knowing no other criterion of greatness but the ostentation of wealth, they discharge their affluence without taste or conduct through every channel of the most absurd extravagance. And all of them hurry to Bath, because here, without any further qualification, they can mingle with the princes and nobles of the land. Some of you may have heard the name of Sunil Ambani and his gigantic 50-storey mansion to look out upon the poor people of India. Many of you would have stayed in five-star hotels in China of wondrous proportions. And it does recall dramatically Bath in 1771. So that was the social texture. The furniture of Heppelwaite, Chippendale and Sheraton. Today, Versace, Dolce Gabbana and the rest of the crap. Furniture by Heppelwaite, Chippendale and Sheraton. So while Hogarth was painting pictures of the poor people, including ghastly fate of poor prostitutes, 
of which there are zillions in Africa, China, and India. People could come to Bath and have their face painted for 100 guineas by Gainsborough or Reynolds. Today, China is the centre of the world's antiques industry and art industry. It's overtaken the Western world. In music, you've gone listen to Haydn or Mozart. And this was a culture for the middle class only. There was no place in the Hanover rooms in London, I can assure you, for any of the mass of the mob that Hogarth painted to listen to his London symphonies, 1791, 1792. So this was was the Enlightenment. Extraordinary drawing of the boundaries around this newly enriched middle class. And you just have to open your eyes in Rio de Janeiro, in Calcutta, or in Shanghai, and that's what we see. Can we teach them much? Sure, we can teach them about middle class. We know a lot about it. We can help them. What about the poor people? What about the two-thirds of the world? Britain's politics was brutal. Narrow, corrupt franchise. Deep fear of the mob amongst the middle class. Our politics internationally was based on contempt and racism. China was viewed as stagnant. Africa was viewed as a land of just savagery and barbarity. Adam Smith, who was the leading thinker of the Enlightenment, argued that the living conditions of a poor European peasant were far above those even of an African king, 1776. He said these are inhabited by barbarous natives. The accommodation of a European prince does not always so much exceed that of an industrious and frugal peasant as the accommodation of the latter exceeds that of an African king. The absolute master of the lives and liberties of 10,000 naked savages. That was our view in the Enlightenment of the native populations of Africa and America, North and South, and our view of the stagnant, despotic nation of the Far East, both of which were extremely problematic. Our prosperity was built on colonialism and slavery. Warren Hastings, who was the first great unifier after Clive of India, spoke in the following way spoke in the following way of the people he'd ruled in India as Britain was enlightenedly, in the late 18th century, controlling this giant people. The Hindu, he said, appears a being nearly limited to mere animal functions and even to them indifferent. This is the enlightened ruler of India, Warren Hastings. Their proficiency and skill in the several lines of occupation to which they are restricted are little more than the dexterity which any animal with similar conformations, but with no higher intellect than a dog, an elephant, or a monkey might be supposed to be capable of attaining. It is enough to see this in order to have full conviction that such people can at no period have been more advanced in civil policy. So we must rule them. This was the Enlightenment. This was the late 18th century. Slavery, racism 
and, of course, deep nationalism. One of the things we have to compete with in the 21st century is that our legacy was small, competitive nation-states, Britain fighting France, fighting Germany, fighting the Netherlands. And we were small and aggressive, and Britain, of course, took the lead and was successful in this. Our behaviour in Ireland, which we tried to incorporate into Britain, defies belief. We protected our industry, we passed the Navigation Acts, we fought for the colonies, defeated France, and that was the basis of our national industrial policy, enlightened. And then we turn to the Enlightenment in America. <coughs> what can we teach China about our enlightened policies in America, our ancestors who colonised North America? There was debate as to whether there were 5 or 10 or 15 million native inhabitants of North America. What is, cannot be debated is how our ancestors behaved in North America. And the Enlightenment was a brutal time. An American military historian, Jean Grenier, who teaches military studies for the US military, described the behavior in the first 200 years of the Enlightenment in North America as follows. For the first 200 years of our military heritage, Americans depended on the arts of war that contemporary professional soldiers supposedly abhorred, raising and destroying enemy villages and fields, killing enemy women and children, raiding settlements for captives, intimidating and brutalizing enemy non-combatants, and assassinating enemy leaders. And he says this is the legacy that America has passed on to its armed forces in the 21st, 20th century. That's the reality, not I. China must be enlightened. That was somebody else who did deeply affected the character of American society. It was a society built, as we know, on slavery. We can't forget it, not I. It was central to the prosperity of this economy. And it was a hugely unequal economy at the time of independence. So that was the nature of the Enlightenment. Not two great things to teach. And of course, its impact rippled through the 19th century. The 19th century was not a century of democracy. It was a century of exclusivist, middle-class rule. And only in the later part of the century did the middle class gradually give up power to the mass of the population. It was a century of colonialism and imperialism. By 1914, Britain had a colonial empire across the world, governing those barbarians, those savages, to the extent of 400 million people, a quarter of the world's population. And the fastest growth of our imperial empire occurred in the period when we were becoming more democratic, in the last 30 years of the 19th century. It was a period of intensification of nationalism, German nationalism, Russian nationalism, French nationalism, and perhaps above all, British nationalism. Industrialization in Europe, capitalist industrialization, occurred within the boundaries of small competitive states. China has been a giant unified entity for most of its existence. It is a fundamental difference in world history. So this national identity was reinforced through national political framework, through education policy, through a unified language, any different in each country, the Tower of Babel, through the mass media, and through literature, and also, of course, through national firms. 
Then, of course, in August 1914, these competing capitalist nations, indistinguishable from each other, with no ideological differences, went to war. As A.J.P. Taylor tells us, the parliaments of Europe, democratically now, almost, were unanimous in their support for war. Men did not debate why they were fighting. They knew it was to defend le patrie, the fatherland or holy Russia. Public feeling in Britain was brought to a white heat. It was hardly cooler in France or Germany. Everywhere, men were, were stirred by righteous passions and thrust themselves eagerly forward for sacrifice. This afternoon, I walked through the Royal Victoria Gardens and I counted 1,200 young men of Bath who were killed in 1914-18 war. That's just from your city. 1,200 men who went off defending their nation, their country. So is the European Enlightenment the model for China? A lot of people in China think so, but of course the people who think so are the middle class. They want a nice country like Edding. They want their Handel, their Mozart, their Hanover Rooms, their Gainsborough, their Reynolds. They don't want to share it. Same for the Indian middle class. A restricted franchise for the middle class, an exclusionary material and non-material culture for the middle class, racism, colonialism, nationalism, war. The United States of America last year announced that it was spending $85 billion, this is in the middle of a long article about other matters, on quotes, upgrading its nuclear weapons. Hmm, it's a very interesting thing to do, to upgrade your nuclear weapons. Very helpful. And then, in February, just fleetingly, they said, well, actually, we got the number wrong. There should have been a one in number of the F-108. It's 185 billion, not 85 billion. Upgrading our nuclear weapons. For whom? For whom are these enlightened weapons directed? After the First World War, Freud asked the following question. The fateful question for the human species seemed to me whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. Men have gained control of the forces of nature to such an extent that with their help they would have no difficulty in exterminating one another to the last man. They know this, and hence comes a large part of their current unrest, their unhappiness and their mood of anxiety. And now it is to be expected, to be hoped, that the other of the two heavenly powers, eternal eros as opposed to aggression, will make an effort to assert himself in the struggle with his immortal adversary, death versus life. But who can foresee with what success and with what result? We should not be too confident. I am very, very, very <coughs> concerned about the mood, about the mood, the mood in China and especially the mood in the West. And don't complain. The people who preach to China, tell it what to do, preach about our enlightenment without any knowledge of our history whatsoever. There was a war, Peloponnesian Wars, and there was a First World War. Who knows the nature of the next war? But we should all wake up. On that jolly note, I'll finish.